Letter Five of Letters from Egypt by Lady Lucy Duff Gordon, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. To Mrs. Austin, Fashion, Monday, November thirtieth, eighteen sixty-two. Dearest Mutter, I have now been enjoying this most delightful way of life for ten days, and I am certainly much better. I begin to eat and sleep again and cough less. My crew are a great amusement to me. They are mostly men from near the first cataract above Aswan, sleek-skinned, gentle, patient, merry black fellows. The little black Rais is the very picture of good nature and full of fun, chaffing the girls as we pass the villages and always smiling. The steersman is of lighter complexion, also very cheery but decidedly pious. He prays five times a day and utters ejaculations to the apostle Russell continually. He hurt his ankle on one leg and his instep on the other with a rusty nail, and they festered. I dressed them with poultices and then with lint and strapping, with perfect success, to the great admiration of all hands, and he announced how much better he felt. Alhamdulillah, kieth el harak kathir yasiti. Praise be to God and thanks without end, O lady. And every one echoed, kieth el harak kathir. The most important person is the Walid, boy, Ahmed. The most merry, clever, omnipresent little rascal, with an ugly little pug face, a shape like an antique cupid, liberally displayed, and a skin of dark brown velvet. His voice, shrill and clear, is always heard foremost. He cooks for the crew, he jumps overboard with the rope and gives advice on all occasions, grinds the coffee with the end of a stick in a mortar, which he holds between his feet, and uses the same large stick to walk proudly before me, brandishing it if I go ashore for a minute, and ordering everybody out of the way. Ya Ahmet resounds all day whenever anybody wants anything, and the Walid is always ready and able. My favorite is Osman, a tall, long-limbed black who seems to have stepped out of a hieroglyphical drawing, shirt, skull-cap, and all. He has only those two garments, and how any one contrives to look so inconceivably neat and respectable, as Sally truly remarked, in that costume is a mystery. He is always at work, always cheerful, but rather silent, in short, the able seaman and steady, respectable hand par excellence. Then we have El Zancaloni from near Cairo, an old fellow of white complexion and a valuable person, an inexhaustible teller of stories at night and always en train, full of jokes and remarkable for a dry humor much relished by the crew. I wish I understood the stories, which sound delightful, all about sultans and ifrits, with effective points at which all hands exclaim, Mashallah, or Ah, as long as you can draw it. The jokes, perhaps, I may as well be ignorant of. There is a certain Sharif who does nothing but laugh and work and be obliging, helps Omar with one hand and Sally with the other, and looks like a great innocent black child. The rest of the dozen are all of various colors, sizes, and ages, some quite old, but all very quiet and well-behaved. We have had either dead calm or contrary wind all the time, and the men have worked very hard at the tow-rope. On Friday I proclaimed a halt in the afternoon at a village at prayer-time for the pious Muslims to go to the mosque. This gave great satisfaction, though only five went, Rais, Steersman, Zankaloni, and two old men. 
The up-river men never pray at all, and Usman occupied himself by buying salt out of another boat, and stowing it away to take up to his family, as it is terribly dear high up-river. At Benisouf we halted to buy meat and bread. It is come Kidire, an Assize town. There is one butcher who kills one sheep a day. I walked about the streets, escorted by Omar in front, and two sailors with huge staves behind, and created a sensation accordingly. It is a dull little country town with a wretched palace of Said Pasha. On Sunday we halted at Biba, where I caught sight of a large Coptic church, and sallied forth to see whether they would let me in. The road lay past the house of the headman of the village, and there, in the gate, sat a patriarch, surrounded by his servants and his cattle. Over the gateway were crosses and queer constellation of dots, more like Mithraic symbols than anything Christian, but Girgis was a Copt, though the chosen head of the Muslim village. He rose as I came up, stepped out and salaamed, then took my hand and said I must go into his house before I saw the church and enter the harem. His old mother, who looked a hundred, and his pretty wife, were very friendly, but as I had to leave Omar at the door, our talk soon came to an end, and Girgis took me out into the divan, without the sacred precincts of the harem. Of course we had pipes and coffee, and he pressed me to stay some days, to eat with him every day and to accept all his house contained. I took the milk he offered, and asked him to visit me in the boat, saying I must return before sunset when it gets cold, as I was ill. The house was a curious specimen of a wealthy man's house. I could not describe it if I tried, but I felt I was acting a passage of the Old Testament. We went to the church, which outside looked like nine beehives in a box. Inside, the nine domes resting on square pillars were very handsome. Girgis was putting it into thorough repair at his own expense, and it will cost a great deal, I think, to repair and renew the fine old wood panelling of such minute and intricate workmanship. The church is divided by three screens. One in front of the eastern three domes is impervious and conceals the Holy of Holies. He opened the horseshoe door for me to look in, but explained that no harem might cross the threshold. All was in confusion owing to the repairs which were actively going on without the slightest regard to Sunday, but he took up a large bundle, kissed it, and showed it me. What it contained I cannot guess, and I scrupled to inquire through a Muslim interpreter. To the right of this sanctum is the tomb of a Muslim saint, enclosed under the adjoining dome. Here we went in, and Girgis kissed the tomb on one side, while Omar salaamed it on the other, a pleasant sight. They were much more particular about our shoes than in the mosques. Omar wanted to tie handkerchiefs over my boots, like at Cairo, but the priest objected, and made me take them off and march about in the brick-and-mortar rubbish in my stockings. I wished to hear the service, but it was not till sunset, and, as far as I could make out, not different on Sunday to other days. The harems are behind the screen furthest removed from the holy screen, behind a third screen, where, also, was the front, locked up and shaped like a Muslim tomb in little. Harim is used here just like German Frauenzimmer, to mean a respectable woman. Girgis spoke of me to Omar as Harim. The cops have but one wife, but they shut her up much closer than the Arabs. The children were sweetly pretty, so unlike the Arab brats, and the men very good-looking. 
They did not seem to acknowledge me at all as a co-religionaire, and asked whether we of the English religion did not marry our brothers and sisters. The priest then asked me to drink coffee at his house close by, and there I sat in the gate, i.e., in a large sort of den raised two feet from the ground and matted to the left of the gate. A crowd of cops collected and squatted about, and we were joined by the mason who was repairing the church, a fine, burly, rough-bearded old Mussulman, who told how the sheikh buried in the church of Biba had appeared to him three nights running at Cairo, and ordered him to leave his work and go to Biba and mend his church, and how he came and offered to do so without pay if the cops would find the materials. He spoke with evident pride, as one who had received a divine command. And the cops all confirmed the story, and every one was highly gratified by the miracle. I asked Omar if he thought it was all true, and he had no doubt of it. The mason he knew to be a respectable man in full work, and Girgis added that he had tried to get a man to come for years for the purpose without success. It is not often that a dead saint contrives to be equally agreeable to Christians and Mussulmans, and here was the staunch old true believer working away in the sanctuary which they would not allow an English fellow-Christian to enter. Whilst we sat hearing all these wonders, the sheep and cattle pushed in between us, coming home at eve. The venerable old priest looked so like Father Abraham, and the whole scene was so pastoral and biblical, that I felt quite as if my wish was fulfilled to live a little a few thousands of years ago. They wanted me to stay many days, and then Girgis said I must stop at Feshin, where he had a fine house and garden, and he would go on horseback and meet me there, and would give me a whole troop of fellaheen to pull the boat up quick. Omar's eyes twinkled with fun as he translated this, and said he knew the sit would cry out, as she always did about the fellaheen, as if she were hurt herself. He told Girgis that the English customs did not allow people to work without pay, which evidently seemed very absurd to the whole party. Gebel Sheikh Embarek, Thursday I stopped last night at Feshan, but finding this morning that my Coptic friends were not expected till the afternoon, I would not spend the whole day, and came on still against wind and stream. If I could speak Arabic, I should have enjoyed a few days with Girgis and his family immensely, to learn their Ansikten a little, but Omar's English is too imperfect to get beyond elementary subjects. The thing that strikes me most is the tolerant spirit that I see everywhere. They say, ah, it is your custom, and express no sort of condemnation, and Muslims and Christians appear perfectly good friends, as my story of Biba goes to prove. I have yet to see the much-talked-of fanaticism. At present I have not met with a symptom of it. There were thirteen copt families at Biba, and a considerable Muslim population, who had elected Girgis their headman, and kissed his hand very heartily as our procession moved through the streets. Omar said he was a very good man, and much liked. The villages look like slight elevations in the mud-banks, cut into square shapes. The best houses have neither paint, whitewash, plaster, bricks, nor windows, nor any visible roofs. They don't give one the notion of human dwellings at all at first, but soon the eye gets used to the absence of all that constitutes a house in Europe. The impression of wretchedness wears off, and one sees how picturesque they are, with palm-trees and tall pigeon-houses, and here and there the dome over a saint's tomb. The men at work on the river-banks are exactly the same color as the Nile mud, 
with just the warmer hue of the blood circulating beneath the skin. Prometheus has just formed them out of the universal material at hand, and the sun breathed life into them. Poor fellows! Even the boatmen, ragged crew as they are, say, Ah, Fellaheen! with a contemptuous pity when they see me watch the villagers at work. The other day four huge barges passed us, towed by a steamer, and crammed with hundreds of the poor souls, torn from their homes, to work at the isthmus of Suez, or some palace of the Pashas, for a nominal piastre a day, and find their own bread and water and cloak. One of my crew, Andrasul, a black savage whose function is always to jump overboard whenever the rope gets entangled, or anything is wanted, recognized some relations of his from a village close to Asuan. There was much shouting, and poor Andrasul looked very mournful all day. It may be his turn next. Some of the crew disloyally remarked that they were sure the men there wished they were working for a city inglese, as Andrasul told them he was. Think, too, what splendid pay it must be that the boat-owner can give out of twenty-five pounds a month to twelve men, after taking his own profits, the interest of money being enormous. When I call my crew black, I don't think of negroes. They are elegantly shaped Arabs, and all gentlemen in manners, and the black is transparent, with amber reflex under it in the sunshine. A negro looks blue beside them. I have learned a great deal that is curious from Omar's confidences, who tells me his family affairs, and talks about the women of his family, which he would not do to a man. He refused to speak to his brother, a very grand dragoman, who was with the Prince of Wales, and who came up to us in the hotel at Cairo, and addressed Omar, who turned his back on him. I asked the reason, and Omar told me how his brother had a wife, an old wife, been with him a long time, very good wife. She had three children, all dead." All at once the dragoman, who was much older than Omar, declared he would divorce her and marry a young woman. Omar said, No, don't do that. Keep her in your house as head of your home, and take one of your two black slave-girls as your harem. But the other insisted, and married a young Turkish wife, whereupon Omar took his poor old sister-in-law to live with him and his own young wife, and cut his grand-brother dead. See how characteristic— the urging his brother to take the young slave-girl as his harem, like a respectable man, that would have been all right. But what he did was not good. I'll trouble you, as Mrs. Grote used to say, to settle these questions to everyone's satisfaction. I own Omar seemed to me to take a view against which I had nothing to say. His account of his other brother, a confectioner's household with two wives, was very curious. He and they, with his wife and sister-in-law, all live together, and one of the brother's wives has six children. Three sleep with their own mother, and three with their other mother, and all is quite harmonious. Siut, December 10th. I could not send a letter from Mania, where we stopped, and I visited a sugar manufactory and a gentlemanly Turk, who superintended the district, the Mudder. I heard a boy singing Zikr, the ninety-nine attributes of God, to a set of dervishes in a mosque, and I think I never heard anything more beautiful and affecting. Ordinary Arab singing is harsh and nasal, but it can be wonderfully moving. Since we left Minia we have suffered dreadfully from the cold, the chickens died of it, and the Arabs look blue and pinched. Of course it is my weather, and there never was such cold and such incessant contrary winds known. 
Today was better, and Wasaf, a copt here, lent me his superb donkey to go up to the tomb in the mountain. The tomb is a mere cavern, so defaced, but the view of beautiful Siut standing in the midst of a loop of the Nile was ravishing. A green deeper and brighter than England, graceful minarets in crowds, a picturesque bridge, gardens, palm trees, then the river beyond it, the barren yellow cliffs as a frame all around that. At our feet a woman was being carried to the grave, and the boys' voices rang out the Koran full and clear as the long procession, first white turbans and then black veils and robes, wound along. It is all a dream to me. You can't think what an odd effect it is to take up an English book and read it, and then look up and hear the men cry, Ya Mohammed! Bless thee, Bottom, how art thou translated? It is the reverse of all one's former life when one sat in England and read of the East. Und nun sitz und mittendrein in the real true Arabian nights, and I don't know whether I be as I suppose I be or not. Tell Alec the news, for I have not written to any but you. I do so long for my rainy. The little copt girls are like her, only pale, but they don't let you admire them for fear of the evil eye. End of letter five. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox files are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.